Welcome to the Hope Revolution messages. You'll be able to find our sermon podcast at hoperevolution.church forward slash sermon, as well as all other podcast players. We hope you enjoy this message. We're reading from Acts chapter 9 today, continuing our series on Acts. In true Tanya style, we start with the word meanwhile, and so we can't just... You know, whenever it says therefore or meanwhile, it means something's happened beforehand. But meanwhile, in a different place in uh, the region, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Now, the first thing we go, hang on, Saul. I thought we were talking about Paul. Isn't Paul what Heather's talking about next week? Saul and Paul's the same person. And it's actually quite simple. There's nothing profound about it. It's just that Hebrews called him Saul and Romans called him Paul. That was the equivalent name in those cultures. And so at this point, he's called Saul, his Hebrew name. And it's like, you know, Italy, Italians don't call their country Italy. It's kind of hilarious. I find it just a little bit weird that we call it Italy when they call it Italia. It's like, well, why wouldn't we call it what they call it? But the English translation of Italia is Italy. Now, interestingly, later on, Saul refers to himself as Paul. And he's not stupid, he's deliberate in doing that because he is talking to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are more likely to understand and appreciate the Roman name. Here, We've got his Hebrew name, but later he gets called Paul because he's deliberately wanting to be known as Paul to connect with people as an evangelist. So, so there you go. So Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues of, in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. So Christians at the time called themselves the way. That was what they referred to themselves as. Any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. He was convinced, he was was adamant on his mission. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, now Damascus was a three-day journey, so he's been been walking for, for two and a half days probably by this point. So he's almost at Damascus, he's almost at the end. A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And again, when I first read that, Lord sounded a bit confusing. Just like, sir. So it's like, it's a respectful title to somebody. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. 
Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. So this guy, Ananias, he's just a believer. He's just a guy in Damascus that is a Jesus follower, part of the way. And um, Straight Street apparently still exists in Damascus. You can go visit Straight Street in Damascus. It's just, again, nothing magical about it. There's just a guy, Judas, who lived in Straight Street. But I love how specific and how clear uh, God's instructions is here to Ananias. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So he's even heard of what's coming up. He's even got news that Saul is on the way to Damascus with a mission and the permission of the leading priests. Now, I love this. Ananias is questioning God. Yeah? We often think God is more fragile than he really is. He's okay with us questioning him. It's nice to see someone make a very practical, realistic point. Um, what Ananias says is not stupid. He's not off the rails. He's not even being selfish. Um, in some ways he is because he wants to save his life. But he's actually just being quite practical and saying, hey, God, this doesn't sound like a good idea. I find that an encouragement. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. I just want to pause. Think about that picture. A guy that has been going around persecuting, wanting to kill you and your kind. And Ananias' posture to him is to lay his hand on a blind guy, which obviously is a way of letting him know that you're present and that you're close and saying, brother. I reckon that's spectacular. He walks to this guy that he knows his past and he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. For three days, Ananias knew that Saul was praying and fasting. Now, we don't know whether he was fasting because he was freaked out and couldn't eat anything. Um, 
but he was fasting and praying for three days. It's a really significant response for a guy that has just had his world turned upside down. He was told to go and wait, but um, he's clearly a guy that is quite driven, and his idea of waiting was to fast and to pray. Now, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. I don't want to steal um, Heather's thunder next week. I don't know what she'll be talking about, but the timeline is quite interesting. There's a whole heap of things that go on that we find out later in Galatians, and Paul tells more of his story, but um, we'll save that for next week. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is indeed the Son of God. So this, this circumstance, this situation has completely transformed him. And not surprisingly, all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate, so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. Again, no surprise there. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. Now, interestingly, I suspect there's a little bit of a link there with Stephen. Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew. And so there's, there's a bit of a connection back in Jerusalem with the guy that he watched getting stoned for testifying about Jesus. And now some Greek-speaking Jews were trying to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea, which is a coastal city, and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord, and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Does anyone remember back where Tanya left it at the end of Stephen a number of weeks ago? The picture was left in complete upheaval. Stephen had just been murdered, been stoned to death by the authorities, by the chief priests and the leaders. And the, the Christians were left in disarray. And watching that was Saul. He was there watching what was going on. And now we see the flip side of that picture. And Tanya made the point 
are saying sometimes what we see in our circumstances look like a complete disaster, look like failure, doesn't look like success. And you can see the mirror image of that in this passage here. The conclusion that the church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in their fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. There's a few things I want to point out just as we move along. The first thing is how Jesus explains what Saul was doing. Does anyone want to, want to read back through that and just tell me, how did Jesus describe what Saul was doing? Asking a question. He asked him a question. Yep. What was his question? Why are you persecuting me? But he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. Ah. We love, and, and I say this frequently, we love to put things in silos. We separate Jesus and the church. Jesus doesn't. You hurt my church, you hurt me. There's no confusion there's no denying that he said, you are persecuting me. You can't read it or translate it any other way. And we think back to some pictures that Jesus used to describe his relationship with his believers. Pictures like, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you damage the branches, you're hurting the vine. Or... You are my body. You can't separate the pieces. You can't damage part of the body without the rest of the body feeling it. Jesus reinforces this in this passage. When you persecute my church, you persecute me. And for me, this is a warning about how I look and reflect my posture towards the church. Is my posture towards the church the same as my posture towards Jesus? No, because I see broken people in the church. I see how fragile they are and go, well, that's not Jesus, he's perfect. And so I separate them and I can criticize and roll my eyes I can disassociate my, myself with it at times and I can pretend that Jesus and the church aren't connected. And yet my perception and my perspective of the church is a reflection on Jesus. The church is his bride. Another, another picture that he gives us. Does anyone like their, their wife or their fiancé being bagged? Someone coming and telling you how frustrating and annoying they are? No one likes to hear that. And yet sometimes our, our posture towards the church, and I'm not saying this church, I'm just, you know, it's rife across the internet. Just jump on Google and search for articles, jump on YouTube, jump on Facebook. Church bagging is a popular hobby. 
and, and pulling people down is really easy to do. If you know enough about my life, I guarantee you can slander me till the cows come home because, you know, there's, there's things that are broken in my life. I'm not perfect. And sure, it's easy to do that with the church. But Jesus here is saying, if you slander the church, you're slandering me. If you pull the church down and mock the church, you're mocking me. The church is my design, it's my body, it's my institution. I want you to love it like you love me. It's a really challenging perspective to have, particularly for those of us that have experienced hurt from people in the church. That's another layer, but Jesus copped a lot of hurt and his response here to Saul is not the response Saul deserved. If I had the power of Jesus, I'm not sure I'd be um, calling him a man and, and saying he's, he's a brother that I want to use. I think there was another direction that we'd, we'd probably put Paul in than that. The second thing I want to point out is the two absolute legends that connected with Paul. These guys are not your typical heroes, but they were instrumental in a changing direction, a mass shift in the kingdom of God. We do not hear anything else about Ananias. We hear about Barnabas, but we hear nothing more about this guy Ananias. For one day, three days, let's say, he just did what he was told. God said, hey, I want you to go to this house. I want you to lay hands on a guy. Pray for him. Let him know that I sent you. That's it. It's amazing how a couple of little things that they carried set them apart to be really significant. The first thing that they carried is obedience, right? They had a sense of what God was doing and they wanted to align themselves with that. That makes them legends in my eyes, that they just were like, God says something, I'm going to do it. But the second thing they both had is something that I'm not going to unpack today, but in recent months has really opened my eyes to a, a fresh perspective of how God sees things and sometimes how we don't. And that is seeing the possibility of good. We get fixated on good results. We want to see good results and our measure of success is good results. Ananias had no reason to attach himself to good results. A guy that's going around persecuting the church, that going on and making him see again means nothing to you. Like, he's, he's got no evidence that things are going to get better. And yet he was like, I'm going to step into the possibility of good here. Barnabas is the same. He bats for Saul, when everybody else says, we know this guy, we've seen what he does, we know what he's testified, he says, no, 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 no. I want to tell you a different story. He's clearly spoken to Saul. He's clearly connected with the guy because he's able to, to give stories about how he preached in Damascus and he's stretched and gone, 
where everybody else sees the results, which are pretty terrible, I'm going to see a possibility that's not yet here. Um, as I said, I'm not going to unpack that today, but that's something that's coming. Watch out. Watch this space. Um, there's a whole heap of stuff in there that's really, really exciting. What I want to focus on today is this concept of conversion. Because this story is put up as the poster child, as the rah-rah, go Christian story, probably along equal with Pentecost, you know, where Holy Spirit comes and 5,000 people are added to their number. This is the next story. What's better than a victory story of a guy that's persecuting the church that does a 180 because of the amazing Damascus Road experience and becomes a passionate Jesus follower? We put this up on the pedestal of being the pinnacle of conversion, the pinnacle of what, of what God is capable of. And it's true. But when you hear the phrase, a Damascus Road experience, some of you may have heard that, it's often accompanied with, I've never had a Damascus Road experience. People often associate themselves with the fact they're not like Saul. People often go, that's the best experience you can have, but that's not me. That's what we put up as being the A game, the, the best example we've got of what God can do, but that's not me. And I want to correct that thinking because when you look at this story you see a guy that was already on a journey he'd heard the gospel already seeds were already being planted in his heart and his mind this was not the first time he'd experienced Jesus he'd watched Stephen give a testimony and die for what he believed that was in his head and his heart already He was living, yes, a life of ignorance, pride, and he was making choices that weren't godly. Absolutely. And there was this point of revelation and conviction, one in which Jesus and the Holy Spirit were clearly actively involved. Then we have three days of a real tension of processing and of wrestling Saul praying and fasting about this new mind-blowing revelation. Then we see the miracle of seeing clearly again, of embrace, of restoration, of belonging, of baptism, of receiving the Holy Spirit. Then there's the exercise of discipleship. Do you notice that when he went out preaching, it says he grew stronger and stronger? He was learning. He was hanging out with the believers. And then there was a challenge of connecting and relating with a bunch of Christians that you look at you weirdly and vice versa. Isn't this our story? Isn't our story the same thing of 
living a life our own way, having a series of events or things that happen that lead to a point of encounter, a point of revelation, a point of Jesus meeting us, his spirit stirring within us. And then the wrestle of going, what am I going to do about it? I don't understand. What is this about? And the miracle of stepping out in obedience and going, yes, I'm going to own this for myself. And the flow of embrace, the flow of restoration, the flow of healing and renewal and belonging that comes from that place where you stepped out and you went, I don't know what's going to happen here. What comes next? And God just says, hey, you're mine. You belong. You're safe. You're okay. And then going, oh, now what does it look like? Reading God's word and going to other believers going, How do I live this? What does it look like to live this? Connecting with a bunch of weird people that think you're weird and you think they're weird. And they call themselves church. You see, the Damascus Road experience wasn't the best bit. That little piece that we focus on actually points to how far away Saul was. How much of a slap across the face he needed for God to get his attention. That's not a badge of honor. And Saul describes later in his letters, mate, I was so lost. I was so twisted. I was so passionately going the wrong way. The grace of God was massive to step into my place, into my space. The greatest miracle happened at Judah's house on Straight Street where Saul surrendered to the truth he'd heard and God embraced him. And you and I if you've accepted Jesus, have had exactly that miracle, exactly like Saul. Just as miraculous and spectacular and amazing. And when we water that down, we water down the power of the gospel, the power of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. This is particularly challenging for those that have grown up in the church, grown up in an environment where accepting Jesus always sounded like a good idea. That's what you got told. But please don't water down that personal choice that you made. Please don't dilute the miracle of God connecting personally with you and saying, your surrender to me is meaningful and what we're doing here is a miracle. 
For those that have grown up in the church, I reckon it's kind of a little bit like eating Vegemite. I had a Ukrainian guy come and visit our house once. He was, he was out on a mission trip. This is many years ago. And I learned a phrase when he was here in his broken English. It's not my favorite. <laughs> a very diplomatic way of uh, saying, I don't particularly like this. Now, for those that grew up with Vegemite in their house, it was always in the cupboard, mum put it on your toast, it was around. It's likely, Tanya's different, she thinks it's terrible, but it's likely that it just became part of what you do. And now as an adult, you go, well, I've got Vegemite in my house and I put it on my toast sometimes too. That's just what we do. Yeah, it's nice. But it was something that your family did because Lisa's family didn't do it and she thinks it's crazy and weird. <laughs> but because your family did it, that's what we do. I now do it too. I like it. That's the risk that we face for those that grew up in the church and do not see the miracle of what happened to Saul. Actually, they experienced too. It's very, very different to Vegemite. It is completely different to Vegemite. And I really want us to pause for a second and think back to that point of surrender. Think back to that point where you went, oh, I think this is for me. <laughs> what am I just about to step into? Think back to that point. Just, just ponder the miracle of what God was doing in that moment when you let go and you felt like you're going to fall off the edge of a cliff and he embraced you and said, I'm so delighted in what you've just chosen to do. I am absolutely, completely behind you, around you. That moment of surrender is so right and good. And the miracle of him coming into your life and giving a new perspective, a new sense of belonging, a new sense of direction, that is spectacular and miraculous. Just pause and reflect on it for a second. You see, when we don't recognize the miracle that happened and how mind-blowing that was, we're not excited about other people having the same experience. We look at Saul and go, oh, I'd love, I'm praying for my friends that they have the same experience Saul had. But by distancing our story with Saul's story, we're actually not witnesses. The analogy is the difference between a travel agent and a tour guide. Because a travel agent sits behind a desk and goes, yep, Mexico is a good destination, here's a brochure. I can book your tickets if you want. And a tour guide says, 
let me take you and show you Mexico. I believe God wants us to stir our connection with him, stir what's already there, not fabricate something new, but recognize what is actually already there. He's already done that miracle and it is spectacular. But he wants to stir the waters, as it were, for us to reconnect with that to give us a fresh perspective of what it means to be a witness for him. There's some beautiful things that happen in this story or that don't happen in this story. Saul is very connected to community. He's a Pharisee and Pharisees were a middle-class group of people that were very passionate about following the letter of the law. And they were a club. His choice rejected that. What was the miracle that God did? He gave him a new club. Yeah. Paul clearly was a driven man of purpose. There was no confusion that he loved a mission. He was wired for adventure. Did God steal that from him in that miracle? Nope. Paul didn't change his personality, but the way God had created him and designed him and the things he discovered about himself that were God's design were still there and still part of the picture. This miracle was a miracle of renewal. And I think God wants to do some renewal today. God doesn't want to change you into a different person. He had a great plan and it was good when you, when you were born, before you were born. But he does want you to believe and trust him for the miracle that he in your life means. And how mind-blowing and spectacular that is. And what that means to our lives. So I'm just going to pray. And I'm going to encourage you. Not even to pay attention to my words. Um, because my prayer is not to you. My prayer is actually to God. But I, I would love your posture bit to be towards God. And to say, God, I want your renewal today. I want the thing that drove Saul, Paul, for the rest of his life to be refreshed in my life. I don't want to be a Vegemite Christian. I want to be a Christian that lives the miracle that you did in my life. So I'd love you to be in a, a posture of surrender, a posture of sensitivity, listening. Those that think lots, I'm just going to pause for a second just to let you get those thoughts out.
Lord God, I want to thank you so much for the miracle that you are in our lives. For the way that you led us to the point of making decisions, of surrender, and the miracle every day after that of life in and through you. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to move in power, to move miraculously, to stir the passion, the freshness, the life that you poured out into us on the day that we first surrendered to you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and renew those flames. Remind us, Holy Spirit, of your intimacy right now. Lord God, for those that haven't been able to recall what it felt like, Father, I pray you just give them a fresh anointing right now. Thank you, Lord. believe God really does want to do some ministry to people's hearts. I think he wants to seal. He wants to reinforce. He wants to push a little deeper. The one thing that we bring to God is surrender. He does absolutely everything else. When we let go of self and we say, have your way, Lord, I guarantee he will smother you in that place. He has so much for you. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, please email us at hello at hoperevolution.church.